All right, where are all the kids at this morning? You guys raise your hands up pretty high? Okay, so I've got a question to start. What is a, uh, what's, what's a feast? Who can tell me what a, what a feast is? What do you think, Ramona? So what we do at Thanksgiving. So what do we do at Thanksgiving? What do you think, Ben? Everybody hangs out and eats. Okay, so it's a feast is like dinner. A big one. So it's like dinner, but it's bigger. Like how much bigger? Like when you think of feast, like how much more food is there than just like dinner time? What do you think, Zaley? That you almost can't get through. Like, do you mean by yourself or like everybody can't eat all the food? Yeah. Yeah. So you invite everybody to this big dinner and everybody eats as much as they want and there's still food left over. All right, that's, that's exactly right. Like when I think of feast, that's what I think of. I think of this huge meal with tons of food, with tons of people and with lots of leftovers. The reason why we're talking about a feast today is because Isaiah, in our passage, describes us going to God like a feast where uh, we can have everything that we want in him and there's still plenty left for us. And so kids, I would encourage you to go home today, ask your parents about this, this feast that we learned about in the passage and what it means and how God invites us to come to him for feasting. Uh, let's, let's pray and then we'll read our passage together this morning. Father, we thank you that you are a God who seeks out your people. That you invite us, you, you draw us, you uh, woo us to come to you. That you don't leave us alone in our sin and our rebellion and our rejection of you, but you come after us. God, we thank you that you sent Jesus to, to suffer and die in our place, to, to make us righteous, to bring us back into relationship with you. God, we thank you that we get to read uh, Isaiah 53 and know that uh, it is good news because of what Christ has done for us. And that the promises you make to your people in Isaiah 53 are already yes in Jesus. I pray that you would help us to today to see that so often we turn to things other than you that do not and cannot satisfy us. And so often we underestimate and undervalue the way in which you love us and show grace and mercy to us. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice and pray that you would send your spirit to help us understand your word together this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're in Isaiah 55 today, and there won't be any slides, so you're going to want to grab a Bible. Uh, there's some underneath uh, at least some of the chairs. We're in Isaiah 55. That's kind of around the middle. It's a bigger book, so if you just flip around for a while, you'll probably get there. Or someone who has found it already could shout out the page number in the books under the chairs if you want to. Nobody? Nobody? All right, it is on a page number. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So Isaiah 55 kind of closes out the section of Isaiah that we've been in that's focused more on the servant of the Lord and the work that he's accomplished. As we talked about a couple weeks ago when we were in Isaiah 54, that 54 and 55 kind of work together to describe the kind of response that happens as a result of what the servant of the Lord does in Isaiah 53. So in Isaiah 53, God, through Isaiah, delivers good news about this servant who's the Messiah who's going to come into the world and suffer and die for the people. He's going to die in their place, and in doing that, he's going to provide them with pardon for their sins. He's going to provide them with the answer to that question of how is God going to save them? How is God going to redeem them? How is God going to forgive their sins? He's going to do it by sending the servant who's going to die in their place, and in dying in their place, he's also going to make them righteous. And so in Isaiah 54, we saw that the response is to worship God, to praise him for what the servant has done, and to not fear any longer because of the situation they're in. So now 55 kind of comes along with the continuation of that response. And it, it, it brings this invitation to come to God, to return to him, to, to respond to the work of salvation that he's done by, by receiving it and participating in So it starts with an invitation to a feast in verse 1. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. In this verse, we should notice that there's a progression happening. It starts with with everybody who's thirsty. If you're thirsty, come. And the reason why this is important is because thirst is what our bodies do to tell us to drink water. If you're thirsty and you don't drink water, and you're thirsty again and you don't drink water, and you're thirsty again and you don't drink water, eventually you're going to get dehydrated. And if you don't ingest water into your body, you will die. 
right? We need water to live. This is a life-threatening need that they have, and God says, come if you're thirsty, if you have this life-threatening need, and I'll meet it. And then he moves forward a little bit. Uh, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. This is a step further. The people are, are helpless, right? They, they cannot provide for themselves, and God says, come to me, and I'll provide for you. So first he, he meets their immediate life-threatening need, and then he meets their helplessness with a supply of food that they can't afford. But then it goes a step further. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This moves on from like life-threatening need and basic need to rich and lavish provision. Right? Milk and wine are, are richer, fuller foods. Right? If you go for a run and you come back inside your house and you're hot and sweaty, nobody reaches for the milk jug to drink a whole bunch of it. Right? That, that's something that you, you partake of at a different time. And during this time, it would have been even, even rarer for people to uh, benefit from having an endless supply of wine and milk. And so he's telling them he's going to meet their, their life-threatening needs. He's going to meet their basic needs. And then he's going to provide for them with an abundance beyond what they can have on their own. And he asks them a question. Right? He says, this is the invitation. Come to this feast where, where you can have everything you want without money, without price. But then, verse 2, why... Do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which what does not satisfy? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? He's basically saying, why would you go anywhere else? If the invitation in verse 1 is gone out, why wouldn't people respond to it? Why would people look somewhere else where they're not going to find satisfaction? Why are they going to spend their money on something else when they can have the best things for free? And there's no answer. There's no answer because it doesn't matter what our answer to that question is. It's not good enough. And here, right, as we just sang a song about about idols, we need to recognize that we turn to things that don't satisfy. We labor for that which doesn't satisfy. We spend our money on that which is not bread. Uh, It might be uh, putting our trust in our bank accounts or, uh, you know, thinking we need to relax and and, uh, kind of wind down from a tough day by watching a bunch of TV or, or, or doing something else. And when that question comes to us of, you know, why do I binge watch Netflix instead of spending time with the Lord? Or why do I trust more in my bank account than him? Or why do I look to this thing or that thing? We all have answers. Right? I need to have an emergency fund. I just need to relax for a little bit. And we need to recognize that whatever those answers are that pop into our heads, they're lies. We want all of those things. We need God. Those things don't satisfy us. And I'm not saying that, you know, don't have a savings account. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm saying that. That's something that you need to decide but we need to make sure that we're finding our satisfaction in the one place where we can truly be satisfied, and that's in Christ and not in anything else. The fact that there's not an answer to that question is what props the response from God. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. He's saying, even though you're idiots and you turn to all these other things, stop it and come here for satisfaction. Right? He still invites them even after they reject him and turn to other things. And then in verse 3, he finally like, spells out what he's really talking about. Right? This isn't about food. It's not about wine and milk. 
Verse 3, incline your ear to me and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. God isn't just inviting them to a feast. He's not inviting them to have food. He's inviting them to himself. He's drawing them back into relationship with him so that he can meet all of their needs. So that he can provide them with full and lasting satisfaction in relationship with him. That's what he's drawing them into. That's what he wants them to hear. That's what he wants them to see. He wants them to get what is good. He says he's going to make an everlasting covenant with them. He also said this back in chapter 44. And here it's important for us to see the everlasting nature of this covenant. It's not something that's going to stop. It's not something that's going to end. It's not something that's going to go away. And the reason why that's important is because they had been trapped in this cycle under the, the Mosaic covenant, the law of the Old Testament, where they kept doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. They would kind of do the right thing for a while, and then they would screw up, and then God would pour judgment out on them. And then they would do the right thing for a while, and they would screw up, and God would pour judgment out on them. And it happened again and again and again, and they we're just stuck in that cycle of blessing and curse from the covenant. And so God steps in and he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And I'm going to cause you to keep its statutes. He is what provides for the keeping of the covenant under the new covenant. And that's why he can say it's everlasting. It's not going to end because it doesn't depend on them. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. It's based on his love. He's the foundation for the covenant. And he puts this statement as kind of like an equal sign with covenant to explain it. He says, my steadfast, sure love for David. Um, this phrase is, 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 is tough. Um, and it involves lots of grammar and boring stuff. And I was debating on whether to spend time on it in the sermon. And the fact that we don't have a projector means absolutely not. And so this week... <coughs> Probably Wednesday or Thursday, I'm going to post something on Facebook explaining this phrase uh, and the different options and what I think it is. So if you're someone that's interested in those things or you're something, somebody that's not interested in those things, I would encourage you to, to look at it uh, and, and read it or skim it at least because the, the answer to this question, at least for me, uh, increases my appreciation for the new covenant that God makes with his people. Um, the, the, the answer, to, to spoil it, is that uh, I think what God is saying here is that his covenant is based, it, it flows out of the foundation of the covenant he makes with us is Jesus' love for us uh, and, and what he does uh, in Isaiah 53. And so if, if, if you're interested in that or want to know more about that, I'll post that on Facebook Wednesday or Thursday. For today, just know that God's going to make an everlasting covenant with us that's not going to go away. Um, verse 4, he says he made him a witness. Here he's talking about David, and I think he's talking about the future David, the Messiah. He's made him a witness to the people, a leader and commander. So he's kind of drawing nations to himself. He's going to call a nation that he does not know, a nation that he does not know shall run to you. Uh, he's drawing in nations from outside of Israel. He's making a people that were not a people to follow God. He's doing that because the Lord has glorified him. God has given glory to the Messiah because of what he's done in Isaiah 53, and the nations now are streaming to him. 
That's what's happening. So this is the invitation that God is welcoming his people into. Uh, It's this lavish feast where people are feasting on God, right? He is what's going to satisfy them. He is what's going to meet their needs. He is what's going to provide for them. They can only find it in him. And so verse 6 calls for the response from his people. The response is, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous, unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is a three-step response. The first response is seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. So step one, seek God. If you want to respond to this invitation that he's sending out to everybody, you need to respond to it. You need to seek him. And notice that this invitation goes out to everybody, but it also comes with an expiration date. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. That's telling us this invitation isn't open forever. It's going to close. And so we should respond to the fact that God is drawing us to himself because there's going to come a time when he's not drawing people any longer. And so our responsibility is to respond to his work of drawing us. That's step one. Step two is let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Step two is stop doing what you're doing. Stop thinking what you're thinking. Recognize that what we do and what we think and who we are apart from God is wrong. We need him to change us and make us new and change the way we think and change what we do because we cannot do it on our own. And I want to clarify that that sounds like, a little bit, like, come to God, but fix yourself first. That's not what I'm saying because look at what step three is. Step three is return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Right? These aren't like, you must do all these steps in order. Do it all at the same time, right? It's in coming to God that he pardons us, that he forgives us, that he draws us into relationship with him, that he has compassion on us, and it's his compassion that he has on us that has that intended effect in us that causes us to live a different kind of life. It's not that we just like muster up our willpower and our determination and do it on our own. He changes our willpower, He gives us willpower so that we can live the kind of life that he calls us to live in that new covenant. He takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He causes us to walk in his statutes. It's not something that we're doing on our own. It's something that he's doing in us and through us. And if we come to him, he'll have compassion on us and he'll abundantly pardon us. The question is, who wouldn't want to respond to this invitation? Right, this God who fully satisfies his people is inviting us to come to him. He knows full well that we're wicked and unrighteous, and he promises that if we come to him, he's going to have compassion on us and pardon us. Right? He knows who we are and still draws us to himself and promises to forgive us and pardon us. That's what prompts verse 8. For, he's explaining what he just said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens, or as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This is really important, verse 8, because 95% of the time, 
probably really 100% of the time, when I think of this verse, and I would guess when you think of this verse, we think about it in specific contexts, like these, these big theological, philosophical ideas, like God is, you know, he's everywhere all at the same time, and he, he knows everything all at the same time, and he, he exists outside of time. I don't understand those things. Well, right, his ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And like that's how we normally take this verse and use this verse. Like if we don't get something, well, you know, Isaiah 55, 8. Um, but we should pay attention to how Isaiah uses this verse in the context. I'm not saying that's not a valid understanding of the verse or application of it, because it is. But it's not the focus. It's not what Isaiah is trying to communicate, right? He's trying to explain what he just said about God. What he just said about God, and really it's the Lord who's explaining through Isaiah, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. And the specific focus is what he said at the end of verse 7. He said, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Right, the response that we would have if we didn't really know anything about God or know anything about the Bible, we, we hear verse 7, we hear God knows they're wicked, God knows that uh, you know, they have unrighteous thoughts, and then immediately he says he's going to pardon them and have compassion on them. We would say, what? Why is he going to do that? If he knows they're wicked and he knows they're unrighteous, why is he going to pardon them? Why is he going to let them go? Why is he going to love them even though the people in Isaiah have done all the things they've done in the book of Isaiah? Because God is gracious, and God loves his people, and he's merciful. That's the focus of verse 8. It's not that God's just beyond our comprehension, and we can't understand these abstract philosophical and theological things. It's that we can't understand the intimately practical love of God that he has for his people. Right? That is what is higher than us. That's what we can't get our minds around. And then he says in verse 9, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This, this isn't a dimension. Right? It's not if we could get like a long enough tape measure to measure just how much higher the heavens are above the earth, then we could say, okay, God's thoughts are, are this much higher than our thoughts. That's not what Isaiah is saying. He's saying that we can't comprehend how much higher God's thoughts are than our thoughts. So, it's not just that I can't grasp how much God loves me. I I can't do that. But I can't grasp how much I can't grasp that God loves me. Right? I can't understand how much I don't understand God's love and mercy and grace that he has for his people. That's awesome. Because we're going to spend the rest of our lives on this earth and all of our lives in the new heavens and the new earth becoming more and more familiar with God's love for us. And we're never going to get to the end of it. We're never going to get to the end of our not knowing we're not getting to the end of it. Because he always has more love that we don't get to understand. 
And so when we use this verse, it's okay to use it for the big theological things. But we need to remember that what he's really saying is, you don't understand how much I love you. You don't understand how much I show you grace and mercy. You can't possibly understand it. And he says in verse 10 and 11, he talks about the reliability of his word. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So he's saying, the rain and the snow, when it falls, has an effect on the earth. Verse 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. There's another place we should be encouraged by this passage. God's saying that his word does what his word is supposed to do. Like it, it succeeds in the purpose that he sends it out for. This means that when the word is preached or we speak the word or we share the word with people, we read the Bible for ourselves, that it has its intended effect. It, it does what it's supposed to do. It does what God wants it to do. Always. And so when we think about evangelism, sharing the gospel with people, I think normally we put like way too much pressure on us and think that if you know, we just say the right words or, or say the right words in the right way, that we can cause people to respond how we want them to respond. Or if people don't respond the way that we want them to respond or the way we think they should respond, that we somehow think that, that the gospel is deficient or we're deficient. But there's this guy named Don Whitney who wrote this book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And he talks about evangelism in that book and he says that successful evangelism is accurately communicating the truth of the gospel. The end. Us being successful in evangelism is sharing the gospel in a way that somebody else can understand it and hear it. Any response on their part is outside of our control. Right? We cannot cause people to respond faithfully to the gospel. Only God does that. And so when we speak the truth of the gospel to people, we can have confidence that Isaiah uh, 5511 is true. That as God's word goes out, it accomplishes its purpose. It succeeds in the thing for which he sent it. So that takes all the pressure off of us. Our responsibility is just to open our mouths and speak the truth of God's word to other people. That's it. And we can even move that outside the realm of evangelism. You want, to, you want to encourage someone? You want to encourage your kids or your spouse or a friend or your parent or whoever with the truth of God's word? Do it. And then you're done. Because you can't control the effect that it has on them. But you can know and believe and trust in that when God's word goes out, it accomplishes his purpose for it. And so maybe you want to encourage them, but maybe God wants to do something else. The important thing is that we're, we're moving our, our trust off of ourself and what we do and how we use God's word to what he wants to do with his word. Our responsibility is just to be the people that deliver the message. In verses 12 and 13, he talks specifically about what his word is going to do in this context. 
He says, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. In these last two verses, he's using new creation language. He's talking about this this invitation that's going out, this thing that he's drawing people into, this thing that he's preparing for his people isn't just, you know, a, a good situation in this world. He's talking about a new heavens and a new earth where where all the wrongs are going to be righted, where everything is going to be the way God designed it to be, where we will be the way God designed us to be, where we'll be unable to sin. And we'll be in a place where we can worship him rightly, always. This is when, you know, there's not going to be thorns and briars. The curse of the fall is done. The effects of sin in the world is gone. And then all of creation, including us, is going to respond in worship to God in the way that we should and ought to all the time. That's going to be a time in which we never look to anything that doesn't satisfy. Because we're finally going to be able to understand fully the fact that only God can and does always satisfy us because we will be satisfied in him today as we take the lord's supper i would encourage you to remember that for those of us who have trusted in christ the the the, you know the encouragement to seek the lord while he may be found if we've trusted in christ god will always be found by us because jesus brings us into god's family Jesus gives us access to God, and that access doesn't go away because it's not based on us and what we do. It's based on Christ's work on our behalf. And so if you're somebody who's trusted in Christ this morning, I would encourage you to spend time preparing your heart to take the Lord's Supper, recognizing that Jesus has brought you into relationship with God. You participate in, you live in, you walk in that relationship. So spend time praying to God, relating to him, confessing your sins this week, preparing your heart to take the Lord's Supper, remembering that the truth that this passage tells us is that we can't understand how much God loves us. Spend time not not just thinking about that, but experiencing the reality that God loves you. Like, for real. He actually does. Not in a, like, I think that God loves me. I know that God loves me. I, I know that there's this concept that God loves me. God loves you like your spouse loves you, like your kids love you. Like it's, it's a real relationship where there is love given back and forth. It's not an abstract concept. It's a real thing. So spend time preparing your heart to take the Lord's Supper by thinking about those things. And if you're someone who's here this morning who hasn't trusted in Christ, I would encourage you to hear the words of Isaiah that uh, you should seek the Lord while he may be found. Right? There is an open invitation that goes out to all people that Jesus died for you, that your sins can be forgiven, that you can be made righteous because of what he's done for you. But that invitation has a deadline. And I don't know what it is. Right? None of us know when the world's going to end. 
but we know that it is going to end. And so if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Christ, I would encourage you to do it today. And if you're here today and you have trusted in Christ and you know people that haven't trusted in him, stop biding your time. Right? I know we all have people in our lives that we know that don't trust in Jesus and we think, you know, I just need to build a little bit more of a relationship with him. I need to wait for the right opportunity. I'll, I'll have more time later to share the gospel with them. We don't know that any of those things are true. But we do know that God has commanded us in his word to be faithful to share the gospel and make disciples. And so we should do that today, this week. Uh, we should be intentional about sharing the message of good news that God has for us and remembering that it has a deadline. So take some time, prepare your hearts, and whenever you're ready, come forward, celebrate the Lord's Supper, and then return to your seats. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your, your ways are higher than our ways, and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I thank you that you you love us, have compassion on us, and have mercy on us, and grace on us in ways that we wouldn't. We thank you that despite the fact that we continually sin against you, and reject you, and rebel against you, and work for and look for things which do not ultimately satisfy us. That you still call us back. That you still love us and you still draw us to yourself in grace and mercy and bring us back again and again and again into relationship with you. Father, I pray today that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that you would send your spirit to, to supernaturally remind us of the reality of the love that you have for us. And that even as you do that, that you would also remind us that no matter how much we know or think we know of your love for us today, that it falls so very short of how much you actually, in reality, love us. I pray that you would help us to respond rightly to your invitation to come and feast. That for those that trust in you, that we would respond and find our satisfaction in you. And that for those who do not trust in you, that they would respond and find in you the only thing that can ever satisfy them. And that we would be faithful as believers to share that good news message with those around us. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, that it's because of your death on our behalf that we can have communion with God, that we can know the love and grace and mercy that he shows to us, that you show to us. In Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.